0: Good morning, almost afternoon here. Uh, there's the countdown clock. This is the speed dating version of uh, the finance conferences. So we're gonna keep to our 35 minutes here. So I'll, I'll keep the introductions very brief. I'm Jack Noonan, former CEO of Kembulk Tankers, founder of my own consulting company, Binnacle Maritime, and director with Borelli Walsh, which did the was the firm that did the Corporate Insolvency Restructuring uh, of former ChemBulk parent Burley and Lejoux tanker. On the panel we have here David Wiswell, the recently appointed COO of Navigate Chemical uh, and former colleague of mine from ChemBulk. Bjorn Christian-Reed, Manager of Investor Relations and Research at Oddfell, one of the largest chemical tanker owners in the world. And Kevin Kilcullen, CFO of Team Tankers. Um, Their bios are in the program. Uh, They're very impressive bios, and uh, I request you to uh, have a look at it. So we'll kick it off here. I've been in the chemical tanker business uh, for 30 plus years, and and I've always enjoyed it. I've I've found it uh, to be fascinating. Bjorn, let's start with you. What's your outlook for the future of the chemical tanker business? Um, you know, what are the main drivers?
1: Yeah, dividing that into long-term and short-term, uh, starting with the short-term, I think we are seeing for the first time, maybe ever in the chemical tanker business that is actually changing quite rapidly. Uh, that um, it is a new structural shift coming into the market the way we see it in the, in the short-term, but also in the, in the long-term. And that is the U.S. shale revolution, making, you know, the uh, U.S. going from a dinosaur uh, in the chemical industry to become a net exporter starting from, from this year of uh, many key products uh, and also into next year. Uh, and then you have the Middle East where we are going um, uh, into large investments into vertical integration, maximizing the value of the barrels. Uh, we're seeing massive uh, buildouts of plants that are export oriented. Uh, where you will t- double and triple the distances uh, for many of the key uh, chemical products out there in the next couple of years. Um, looking at the long term, we do carry kind of the, the building blocks of the modern society. Um, looking at uh, IEA and other uh, researchers, we're seeing 3% demand growth in the long term for chemicals, uh, refined products, 0.5% of which a large share of that will go into uh, production of petrochemicals. Uh, IEA last week uh, had a report out saying that um, 50% of the world oil demand will go into chemicals uh, over the next, uh, you know, by 2050, and 30% of oil demand will go into petrochemicals by 2030. So, so I think um, the stars are aligned for our segments, and I think the very short term is extremely exciting, and it, uh, it's really we are entering into uncharted uh, territory.
0: What about uh, the impact of, you know, the increasing price of oil? And you you touched on the um, Middle East infrastructure. Uh, What kind of change does that have on uh, ton mile demand? You know, historically, U.S. Gulf was always the biggest supplier of uh, petrochemicals, especially the petrochemical feedstocks, like the the upstream um, uh, chemicals as opposed to the downstream, more specialized.
1: The interesting part about the U.S. and the shale is that it's gas-based chemicals. Uh, We're we're seeing, you know, the Henry Hub is disconnected from the oil price. Uh, We're seeing these investments uh, being made since 2010, uh, entering the market. And then, uh, because they have a huge competitive advantage versus China, for example, the world's largest importer of chemicals, uh, that is reliant on um, uh, crude-based feedstock. So what we're seeing now is that the Koreans and the Japanese are not able to compete with the U.S. Uh, producers. Uh, and we also see uh, also large investments in China uh, that is based also on, on NAFTA and crude uh, input, uh, having, you know, a hard time competing uh, with the U.S. based on their feedstock cost. costs. So, um, so the oil price in general, when it has moved upwards, uh, it's really in the favor of increased long haul uh, shipments.
2: David, anything on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the same can be said for the European refineries as well as they're crude based. So I think while you have the Middle East being a supply center as well as the U.S. Gulf being a supply center for China, I think the sort of the U.S. and Middle East are also going to be seeing increased exports to the European market as as the increase in oil price increases their energy cost and makes them uh, less competitive relative to these two new uh, production centers.
0: Thank you. Um, the ship owners up here, uh, their fleets go across the full gamut of uh, chemical tankers. You know, uh, unlike the commoditized uh, chem- uh, tankers, crude VLCCs, Aframaxes, Suez Maxes, and product tankers, you get the MRs. When you say chemical tankers, there's a, there's a vast range. We have, you know, the, the commodity chemical tankers, which are uh, nicknamed chemical MRs, all the way down to... Uh, In my day we called the drugstore trade. Uh, Now they're calling it super segregator. So This is a toss-up who uh, uh, What do you think is the the, the future the? uh, Long-haul commoditized larger volume not long-haul larger volume uh, Commoditized chemical feedstocks the the upstream feedstocks or the downstream um, specialized chemicals that move in smaller lots that require greater sophistication what do you think the balance is?
1: Yeah, I could say uh, our DNA in Odfjell we are a parcel tanker operator, and that's what we've done uh, since we uh, kind of started this business in in the 50s. Um, when it comes to growth going forward, I think uh, there's uh, going to be um, plenty around for for all of us. And I think uh, for us, it will always be kind of an optimization game that if uh, kind of if we do not make uh, healthy returns on the, on the uh, specialized uh, smaller parcels. I mean, of course, then we will move into more of the bulk uh, chemicals. And uh, I think basically the, the an- short answer is that it will be correlated in a way. Mm-hmm. So I don't think uh, the parcel tankers, all the bulk operator, will be much better off uh, than, than the others. Uh, so um, yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, for, for Navigate, we're certainly more focused on the, the commodity, the larger volume sort of commodity chemical movements. I think a significant amount of the demand that's coming from China, methanol being sort of one headline example with the methanol to olefin plants, which are production facilities that are the feeds, ultimately the feedstocks for the sort of key consumer goods, is an area in which we're focused. So I think as that area can, c- continues to grow versus some more specialized products, which I think is a more mature market we see the opportunity to, to capture sort of incremental growth and in volume in the more commoditized chemical movements.
0: OK, Kevin, you're not getting off the hook here. <laughs> so <clears throat> when it comes to the cargo mix, what's your opinion on um, producer cargoes, the big chemical and oil companies, with their contracts of a and the uh, commodity traders with their spot movements, and Is there an ideal balance there?
3: I don't think there is an ideal balance, and it really depends on the asset mix of the vessel owner. If you have a business like Bjorns with highly sophisticated ships that need to carry a bunch of different cargoes, you probably need a base of contracts to ensure a trading pattern to fill those ships. If you have less sophisticated vessels, like myself and David, you can mix in a, a fair amount of spot volumes. As you know, you'll be trading mainly point to point and doing much fewer parcel business. I think the COAs provide some downside protection in a falling market, but pricing resets every year, maybe every two years. So it's not long-term price protection. It's more of a guarantee of a trading area than a synthetic time chart or cover.
0: And and what about the fleet makeup? The, uh, as far as the ownership makeup, I should say, uh, I've worked for four different uh, shipping companies and it was always owner-operator. What's your feeling about employment of tonnage, and this is actually for anybody, uh, employment of tonnage via time chartering out, um, time chartering out to the oil majors, chemical majors, any any cargo shipper uh, versus chartering out to a uh, competitor, um, a, a tonnage operator that may prove to be your competitor. Any opinion there?
3: I mean, I think the, uh, the three companies on this panel all have pretty sophisticated onshore organizations to fix their ships and create a cargo book and optimal trading patterns for their fleets. We will fix a ship out on time charter on occasion, but that's more of an adjunct to a customer relationship. If there's a big COA customer in one region, we might give them a time charter ship so that they have the appropriate exposure on the uh tonnage side going forward but as a as a general rule we feel like we create value by operating our ships and therefore we don't want to give that away to somebody else
0: i agree with that anybody else
1: yeah from our side we do we have 60 65 coa coverage uh, on on our vessels uh, and we own the larger sophisticated super segregators uh, ourselves and also the larger stainless uh, steel tankers and then we have a, of a sort of a 50-50 approach on time chartering. And that's important for us to kind of flex uh, our vessels and uh, you know the opportunities in the market as they uh, arise. Uh, if the market is weak, we will re-deliver tonnage. Uh, and if we see the opportunities, we will take them in on chartering. So, so we do. Uh, and we will continue to do that, I think. And um, for example, now with our new buildings, with our growth and what we've done on the, on the um, consolidation side, uh, we have actually been replacing those new vessels with uh, older and more expensive time-chartering tonnage. So.
0: And I would think the, uh, the, the intrinsic use of capital plays into that as well, owning versus time-chartering, or new building, second-hand.
1: Sure, and, and for the, uh, you know, the 19,000 tonners, there's a fairly liquid uh, time charter market which you can play, so we don't have to own them.
0: Mm-hmm. David, this one's for you. Um, I had uh, thought about addressing the impact on trade, because that's what we're talking about in this part of the, uh, uh, the session. Um, what's the, what, what do you feel the impact of the uh, Trump administration's policies are? I, I will say that there was an entire session on that uh, earlier today. I, I, I wasn't here, um, but I was wondering if you wanted to comment that with any specificity to the chemical tanker trade.
2: I mean, I think it can be broken down into short-term impact that I think has already happened and potential longer-term impacts. Uh, I think the short-term, looking specifically at China with, with uh, excuse me, with ethanol being a, a key trans-Pacific cargo, I think the sort of scepter of, of potential tariffs against specific commodities impacted the actual trade before the commodities were actually being moved and the tariffs were being implemented. i think while that might be more of a trader mentality i think when you look towards the longer term impacts and what's happening relative to the viability and the sustained growth within the the chemical tanker market it's looking at a lot of the plans and planning stages that the petrochemical plants in the u.s gulf particularly are are in right now if the trade war continues it becomes a protracted uh Problem between China and the United States, I think there's the possibility for some of those petrochemical plants in the studies that they that they 're in right now to be scrapped because the you know, the economic viability is no longer no longer there
0: yeah and in, in, in wrapping up on the uh, the, the trade portion uh, and <clears throat> tying in two of the last uh, questions. Um, Having spent the amount of time I did in the chemical tanker sector, what I will say is that I've always tried to describe it to the layman as a cross between tanker trading and, and the liner trade. So what you were saying about the COA mix, which I fully support, I've always kind of targeted the 50-50 mix as, as a target with a plus or minus 10 percent swing, depending on freight rates. Um, you know, the... Um, you really need that for the rateability of, ex- of establishing uh, trade lanes. Um, and as as far as the, the tariffs and such, you know, in the book, 90% of everything, uh, 90% of everything moves on the water in some form uh, or another, and the petrochemical feedstocks, uh, much of which go into production of plastics and fibers, uh, ultimately ends up as as you know, consumer goods uh, that we that we use every day in the automobile industry, housing, et cetera. Any comment on that, or?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's globally. You look at the growing middle class. The middle class is ultimately going to be the consumer of the goods or the end products that are made with the petrochemicals that we carry. So while I think China is an important market, you look at India, you look at Latin America, and ultimately, you know. Uh, Africa. At some point, um, it's it's a diverse array of of areas in which you're going to see demand for these products that we're using. So I think there is there is opportunity across regions and globally for for growth within the space and, and new markets to continue to grow.
0: Okay. Thanks. Um, this wouldn't be a, a proper shipping conference without addressing that 800-pound gorilla-in-the-room consolidation. Um, I know that there's a panel devoted to this right after lunch. But um, specifically within the chemical tanker sector, uh, there have been two major, over the past three years, two major consolidations. Stolt Nielsen's acquisition of Joe Tankers, which both Oddfell and Chembulk were involved in. Uh, we made the, f- the final three. and. Um, Also, most recently, team's acquisition of um, Lorin Maritime. So, who would like to address the uh, topic of consolidation and the very fragmented uh, chemical tanker sector?
3: Jack, I got very nervous there. When you said 800-pound gorilla, I thought this was an IMO 2020 question. So, (laughs) consolidation is much easier to discuss. Um, As Jack mentioned, we completed a $210 million deal in April, added, about uh, 15 ships in a a very uh, sophisticated, high quality onshore operation to our business. We uh, continue to think consolidation will drive uh, the chemical market going forward. Um, I I think there are many reasons why chemicals in particular is a much more uh, suitable segment for consolidation. When you look across shipping, in part because There is, it is a more inefficient business. There are heavier onshore organizations. There are more port calls. There are more cargo operations. All of these things improve with scale. And we've certainly seen that in our acquisition where we were able to dramatically reduce the combined cost base of the two companies. We think that creates real value and should continue to occur in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I totally understand the operating uh, synergies there and the operating benefits, but if it's so good, why hasn't it happened? What are some of the impediments?
1: I think f- uh, from field side, we, we've done two uh, transactions. Uh, we took control over Cynochem's fleet and you entered into the market. Uh, we also took a chemical transportation group out of the market. And I think going back when we were looking at consolidation uh, targets, it was Sinochem and uh, CTG on top of that list. But beyond that list, there were not that many, and that's... For us, we need to find that fit. I think there are many companies out there with attractive assets, but they're also on a wide variety that doesn't necessarily fit our platform today. So Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily just to pick a vessel and see that, hey, we're consolidating, but we're actually just entering into a new type of trading our vessels.
3: I think there's also still a lot of family ownership in chemical tankers, particularly Globally, uh, when you look at regional chemical tank operations, there are family-owned long-term owners that might not necessarily be looking for a combination. They're looking to pass the business down to the next generation. So they have a motivation that's not the same as maybe the public companies represented here.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that, too. I, I just think the differences in ownership structure, you know, public, uh, family-owned, private equity-owned, that in and of itself creates a an, an impediment that needs to be overcome. What about tonnage supply? Uh, we were talking about Bjorn. You were very eloquent in in speaking about the demand. Um, what about tonnage supply, uh, David? You want to address that? Um, sure. New order book. Uh,
2: I think it's really twofold. First, looking at the chemical tanker order book right now, it's at historical lows relative to where it's been in about the past twenty years. It's about nine percent, give or take. Averaging probably about 29% over the last 20 years, obviously a lot of that coming in say the 2012 to 2015 window when there were a significant number of new builds uh, being being ordered and and delivered. So I think it's taken a significant period of time for the market to really sort of digest that additional tonnage that that was coming onto the water. I think furthermore, you're seeing constraints or a bottleneck in the actual abilities for these yards to build. So if you were to order a stainless ship in Japan right now, you'd be looking at about a two-plus year lead time until the vessel is to actually hit the water. So in terms of sort of the immediate runway and sort of a supply-side shock, there is that bottleneck that I think is going to prevent that going forward. Uh, I think the bigger issue, or say an issue on top of the, the underlying one, is, is the product tanker market. I think when you're looking at MRs in this sort of dearth of orders that that came in during the same period as, as those chemical tanker orders, there was not enough cargo to fill those ships necessarily. So I think they sort of became more agnostic about carrying chemicals or carrying CPP. So when there was sort of that, that you know, indifference relative to the cargo that they were moving, the fleet was artificially growing in a way that was increasing competition just beyond the core chemical tanker fleet. I think we're seeing the, the supply side, it's about the same, about 9% now as well for the product tanker in terms of order book to, to current fleet. So I think there's a lot of promise in that sector as well. And that sort of cannibalization that was happening between the two is starting to abate somewhat, which should, should be positive for, for the sector as a whole
0: yeah thanks for that david i I would also say that uh, in in the uh, chemical tanker uh, trades, one of the largest uh, ship profiles is what 's referred to as a j nineteen a twenty thousand ton or a nineteen nine uh, officially built in japan stainless steel and and this is a phenomenon that only really started at the beginning of this century so you, you have ships that are you know, 18, 18 years old. Um, y- you got to wonder that uh, ships that in 2020 are going to be 15 to 20 years old. Does it warrant the? Um, does it warrant investment of the ballast water management? Uh, does it? You know, the capex involved. Those ships are less fuel efficient than the new echo design, and and you have the IMO, the more expensive IMO fuel. You're not going to put scrubbers on those ships. There's no room for it. So. My personal feeling is that uh, there will be a natural kind of attrition in, in that sector, um, which will, will tighten the supply. Any comments to that?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you're I think you're right, and I think if you look at you know if you're inspecting uh, you know 10, 15 year old uh, vessels. Uh, also maybe you know 18 19 20 year old vessels for, for some reason you will see that the maintenance uh, for those vessels has not been extremely good uh, considering the market we've been uh, through for the last 10 years so adding then uh, ballast water treatment systems of $700,000, which is not potentially you know a big issue in itself when we do you add imo 2020 and um, mgo uh, fuel or 0.5 percent fuel uh, as an additional cost and you can't pass that through to the customers. I think uh, we will see more, uh, you know, opportunistic scrapping in, in chemical tankers that we haven't seen before since we normally, you, we'll own those vessels until they're 25 or 30 years of age. Um, but now, approaching uh, these regulations, um, I think we could see some accelerated scrapping despite, actually, the market improving. So.
2: And I think relative to that, the typical market or buyer for that older tonnage is going to be in the Far East, somebody that has a small, sort of several vessel fleet. So I think when, you, when you're looking at the costs associated with ballast water treatment, the increased cost in fuel, I think given the size of some of those, those companies and the financing that they might be able to secure, it makes it more difficult, I think, for the seller to, to find an appropriate or willing buyer that, that sees the sort of economic viability of that sort of transaction.
1: Also adding to that also, we're seeing you know, the, ch- the change, change of uh, trading patterns here with more US, Middle East volumes moving into Asia. I mean, that will replace Korean and Japanese older tonnage and short sea uh, vessels. Uh, and they're also uh, approaching their uh, you know, age uh, or scrapping age uh, closely. So I think we'll also see scrapping to more specific type of vessels because they need to consider their options because their trade might uh, disappear or sh- uh, shrink at the same time.
0: Yeah, Thank you. Um, when we put this uh, panel together, uh, we wanted to first lay the groundwork of what our chemical tanker trade is. Uh, and I hope we've done that, but this is a SHIP Finance conference. So let's shift over to uh, SHIP Finance. Um, there were three excellent panels that preceded this one um, that addressed bank finance, PE and alternative finance, and uh, also capital markets. So. Once again, that was covered quite well with those panelists and moderators, but uh, let's talk to the specificity of of the chemical tanker trade. Uh, David, uh, you want to, or uh, Kevin, you want to take take this since you're a CFO, funding the growth, for instance? (laughs) Where's that coming from?
3: So I think, you know, In many ways, we're one of the the operator of the least sophisticated tonnage on the panel. We also have the least sophisticated capital structure. We're entirely financed with public equity and bank debt. I think, um, and hopefully this ties into the consolidation discussion earlier, um, I think the bank debt is going to be, uh, traditional ship finance, is going to be a major source of financing for those few companies that are large enough uh, and transparent enough to appeal to the international banks that provide that capital. We, uh, we continue to see uh, ship finance as a, as a big part of the future. And on the other side, we think there's a real opportunity for uh, a leading public company here to uh, tell this story that we've been talking about and that there is some excitement about in a meaningful and larger way. Uh, I think we're all challenged to, to be able to build the scale to, to make that happen.
0: David, you want to chime in on this?
2: I mean I, I think I, I agree with uh, agree with Kevin. I f- think from our side, being uh, you know, having institutional investors involved with us, I think that's something that we continue to uh, to con- continues to be a focal point for us. Uh, certainly, the idea of, of consolidation and getting larger scale to have to have a, you know a meaningful a meaningful size fleet that might be. Uh, interesting to the public markets is something that, that we certainly certainly discuss, but I think there's, you know the impediments that you mentioned before continue to be something that, that we struggle with.
0: Like I said, this was, this was addressed in, in some detail uh, on, the, on the previous panels. Uh, coming from Chembulk, which was uh, since uh, December 1st, 2015, after the restructuring, after it emerged from restructuring of Berlin-Laju Tanker, uh, owned by uh, Private Equity KKR and and your Capital. But on that private equity panel, the, the general feeling of those panelists was that pure private equity, as we've seen over the past, um, you know, eight years, let's say, um, certainly six to eight years, that that model is changing. I think Art Regan referred to a, uh, you know, kind of a hybrid um, hedge fund uh, debt platform mix for, as opposed to the straight private equity, this is toss-up. Anyone want to address that?
3: I mean, I think that's right. I think you're seeing a shift from private investors away from traditional private equity that buys a company and creates a value over the intermediate term um, to more opportunistic investors that are purely looking at the cyclical play. And I think. Chemicals uh, in particular, that's a bit more difficult to do because of the illiquidity of the assets. So in many ways, this sector is not as suited for opportunistic investment as some of the, some of the bulk trades. But there is still uh, interest amongst that type of investor.
0: You're all publicly listed uh, companies. Um, I came from Stolt Nielsen. I was there 11 years. And, and very much like Oddfell, um, much of their fleet were Purpose-built, very sophisticated, uh, high-quality ships, some of which lasted 30 or or 35 years. Uh, Bjorn, I want to ask you, relative to the uh, the valuations and earnings, is it worth it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. We've been trading. um, We've had our own uh, issues uh, over the time, but I think. Being publicly listed is uh, something we will continue to be, and uh, we, of course we want to utilize uh, that as a, as, a, as a currency at some point. Uh, we would, since our issues at our largest Rotterdam terminal, uh, long story short, going from generating 50 million dollars of EBITDA to minus 60 million dollars of EBITDA, uh, causing a headache for the company, um, before that happened uh, we did trade at 1.1 times book. Since then we've been trading at 0.4 times book. So. There's a long way up to that, uh, but we sorted out uh, the terminal uh, issues. Uh, and I think now everything we wait, we're waiting for is the market to actually pick up and, the mar- and also the investors to get that confidence that we can actually generate those returns uh, across the cycle, which we've done before. Um, I think the way we see it now, uh, it is worth it, but I think, uh, you know, from a valuation perspective, it's, it's um, I can say it's, it's frustrating, that's for sure.
0: What about the venue for a public listing?
1: I mean, uh, you're in Oslo,
0: right, team? Uh, Team is in Oslo, right, uh, Kevin?
3: Yes. Yeah. Both uh, Oddfell and Team are Oslo, and um, Navigate is OTC in Oslo. Um, The Oslo market is very inexpensive to maintain a listing, Uh, having just gone through an acquisition process and a prospectus process. And having had history with SEC processes, I got to say, the uh, way Oslo operates its capital markets is extremely efficient. Um, so we continue to like Oslo as a, as a listing. And we'll uh, explore uh, additional exchanges as hopefully we continue to grow. So you answered my next question already, which was, <laughs> is New York the only place to be? Hey, Jack, I, I hate to do this to you, but with two minutes left, do you mind if I ambush you on something? I guess I deserve it <laughs> uh, now that you 're uh, an outsider, you have any unvarnished thoughts for the room on chemical tankers and the chemical tanker industry
0: well I, I, I loved it. I absolutely uh, loved the chemical <coughs> tanker business. I think what was most exciting for me was the, the, the correlation of the cargoes we carried um, to uh, all the way downstream to the, co- the consumer goods side. I remember. Quick example, uh, in two thousand and seven, going into two thousand and eight, uh, the largest volume chemical that Kemball carried to China uh, was methanol and in two thousand and nine, that went to next, to next to nothing and we weren 't carrying not like the navigate chips or were teamed with the, you know full cargos of methanol these were these were parcels because that 's the type of company that, that Kemball was and, and the methanol was going into the production of formaldehyde which is a resin used in the production of plywood, and of course, plywood is used in housing. Well, we all know what happened in 2008 and 2009. There was no methanol moving. Very, very little. It went from the, one of the top volume commodities to one of the smaller ones that we carried. And why? Well, houses weren't being built in the U.S., plywood wasn't being built, uh, manufactured in, in China. No need for formaldehyde, no need for, for methanol. So. And that was the thing that I always found so fascinating was the, you know, the downstream correlation to, to uh, everyday life. Thanks. Okay, I think we're uh, running out of time. We might have time for one quick question if anybody has anything. Okay, well thank you very much for your time.